Today on Across the Aisle, I'm going to visit with Reno City Councilman Oscar Delgado to talk about politics at the local level, as well as the state of health care and the role of federally qualified health centers in our health care system. I'm Senator Ben Keefer, and this is Across the Aisle. Thank you for joining us. We are ready to go across the aisle with Oscar Delgado. He is city councilman for the city of Reno in Ward 3, which makes him my constituent, but I am not one of his. I get to lodge my complaints with the city elsewhere. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about politics at the local government level. Uh, the city council runs in nonpartisan races, but oftentimes you see political parties line up behind one candidate or the other. What's your sort of general assessment of the state of politics within local government right now? First of all, I just want to thank you for inviting me over, Ben. I appreciate it. We, we not only just talk about politics, but we often talk about family and community. So I appreciate the opportunity just to sit here at the table and talk about just life and politics and everything else. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, with respect to just the, the partisanship and the way we run races here locally, uh, there are definitely party politics involved. But to be pretty honest with you, I, I'm not necessarily really involved with the Democratic Party. I am a Democrat. Um, but one thing that I hold true to myself is that I know I don't have a D or R next to my name when my name's on the ballot. Um, I really strive to work with everyone in my community and represent everyone as best as I can. And of course, like anything else, there'll be some issues that we just don't align with. Um, but I try not to let party get involved with that. Um, you know, and I've been lucky enough to win the time that I've been elected, even back in 2012, way back in 2012, uh, that I had strong support from both sides. Um, and that meant a lot to me because my hope is just that I was doing the right job, doing the right work and, and asking the right questions. I, I think that's true. I think not having a party label next to your name when you're on the ballot probably makes it a lot easier to get sort of bipartisan support. I mean, uh, you were elected in 2012 and again in 16. If if you decide to stand for election in 2020, you'll have my support, right? And, you know, being a, despite the fact that you're a Democrat, right? And, and <laughs> even if you had a D after your name on the ballot, you know, I'm sure I'd still be able to support you, but it makes it a heck of a lot easier being in a nonpartisan race, right? right? And um, there's just something about it that uh, makes it um, makes it easier for uh, for people to, I think, generate support from both sides. Yeah, you know, and one of the interesting things for me is when I ran in 2012, um, I had quite a few Democrats because I wasn't involved in the party, you know, so to say. So in, in 2012, a lot of people thought that I was a Republican just because a lot of the host committees that were people were out there raising money more supportive for me were held by Republicans in our community. And I had, you know, I was straight with them saying, no, I'm a Democrat. I just... Again, you know, I've also benefited from a lot of people who happen to be Republicans that gave to the nonprofits that help support me, and, and I'm a product of. Uh, point uh, Boys and Girls Club. You know, the Boys and Girls Club. I was a kid. I, I went there. I kept me out of trouble. Helped me with my homework. Gave me my first job, um, and and gave me opportunities and scholarships. And a lot of those on the board are Republicans, and they were some of the, my first supporters right off the bat. And so, I, you know, for me, again, it's not a party. It's just also going back and just acknowledging their support, but also being straight and candid with them about, you know, I don't necessarily agree with you on that issue because of this, this, or that. Um, there are some, you know, of course, local elected officials that really run that party line hard. And um, uh, I I oftentimes always very candid with them too by just saying, that's, that's not me. You know, uh, again, I'm out there knowing that the government can't do it by themselves. And so there's a lot of private public partnerships that enable us to get the resources we need another one for example is trainer you know when trainer the trainer pool was um, burglarized and was vandalized the city didn't have enough money to 
to rebuild it and get it back up. So I had to go out and ask the private sector to go out and help. Um, and for me, that was important, making sure that I didn't already draw a line in the sand saying I'm only going to work with this party, this or that. It's You've got to work with everyone. And that's the only way we're going to be able to make sure that everyone's in a, in a good place and quality of life is is, is, is there. It's all about relationships. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, you know, being able to have relationships with people and d- disagree when you have to and still like each other and get yeah. along. That's, yeah. that's how you get things done. And at a local government level, it's probably more critical than anywhere. Yeah, that's the hope. Absolutely. I would think. Are, are national issues starting to sort of infuse into, into local government? I mean, you see it a lot mm-hmm. in places like Seattle or other big cities. I was just in Seattle last week, and um, a, a lot of those national issues sort of are trickling down into local government. Are you, are you feeling that in Reno? I am. Um, you know, and I'm having to speak out on issues and issues I didn't really thought that I would need to, especially at the local level. You know, early on, I did go on speak out in support of DACA. And that for me is very important because of my constituency in terms of Ward 3. Ward 3, again, is probably your, your older communities. Back in 2010, after that census, it became the first minority, majority ward. So there's a large Latino community in Ward 3. And when there's references by the administration that's talking about getting rid of DACA or there's issues related to immigration, that starts to impact my communities in the sense of people not wanting to go to school or go to the parks or go to you know, the grocery stores, and that starts to really embed and, and impact local government safety issues, right? It starts to impact the way people feel about where they live. And so for me to have to go out and now have to speak on a national issue that we don't necessarily have um, anything to say about is is kind of was new to me because mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd have to speak on something like that. Um, having to push forward the uh, res- the welcome welcoming uh, cities resolution was something else that was wasn't necessarily a city issue, but it was a a sentiment I felt that I had to speak on because it was changing the way we saw our own communities and the safety and the welcoming pieces of that. Um, I, had, I had families and, and, and I'd run into the grocery store, they were crying because they weren't sure um, if they're going to be able to see their kids after they got home from work. Uh, and a lot of them were actually green card holders. They were just assuming that from words in the street that that's not going to matter anymore. They're just going to pick up anyone. And, and that didn't feel right. So the rhetoric, rhetoric was, was powerful. Yeah. It, it affected and people started, who weren't even being captured and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And it started impacting RPD. You know? in, what, in what ways? People stopped calling. If there is an issue of those crime taking place, if there was a domestic violence issue, if there was something taking place in their community that they should be able to call and make sure that there's services there for, they started not doing that because they didn't want to see enforcement in hmm. their home or in their communities because that, in the, that started to look like triggers. That was that going to be ICE? Is ICE going to be involved in that? Are people going to start getting arrested? Are you going to have to start showing your papers? It's, it became this whole traumatic experience that, again, as a local elected official, I didn't think I'd have to speak on, but I was starting to. Now, a lack of faith in Absolutely. your government um, is a dangerous road to start going down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you see it in crime in other cities, right? I remember I grew up just outside of Chicago, and I remember yeah. reading recently that there was a, a weekend in the summer where there were like 60 shootings. And none of them were solved right? yeah. because the community didn't have faith in, right. the, in the law enforcement to, um, to to report, even when they knew who was doing it. Yeah, we worked really, really hard to establish that trust, those those relationships with the community, really hard. And a lot of props to the Reno Police Department and the way we're handling that. And, and again, getting outside of our normal traditional ways of enforcement, but really being proactive and building those relationships so people are reaching out. Yeah, Chief Soto, I think, is doing a really good job. Doing a great job. Yeah. The... Um, 
you know, national politics is obviously taking center stage these days. Yeah. Um, we've got a presidential campaign going on. We've got presidential candidates coming through the state. Um, right. Are you being actively recruited to uh, support someone? Or? I, I, I am. I am. <laughs> have you made a choice? Uh, it's. I have. I have. Uh, I've. I've come on supported and endorsed Biden, mm-hmm. um, and I. And I for various reasons, but most of it is just I think that he's someone that's going to be able to reach across the aisle mm-hmm. and understand that it's, you know, we've we got to be able to do that in order to move the conversations forward. Um, he, he's someone that's, that has a lot of experience in that nature, and I also feel um, his his relationship with Obama was going to bring more bring forward a lot of the issues that I was supportive of. And so that, to me, was was something that I could get behind. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens after the primary, of course, after the caucus. Uh, well, who ends up out there, but great people involved. Um, but, you know, some of the things that they're reaching for, for me as a local government official came in in 2012 when we were deep in the red is you can't promise everyone everything when there's not enough funds to cover everything. That's uh, for sure. And so we got to at least bring some some conversation, some practicality to it, to all of it. And I think um, Biden carries a lot of that experience with him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely spent a lot of time in the arena. Right? right. And you don't do that without developing relationships across the, across the aisle. That's Absolutely. For sure. um, you know, one of the biggest issues that we talk about, at least in, in Reno, and I think it, it's true across the country, we're seeing it everywhere, is homelessness. Yeah. Um, you know, is there – can cities fix homelessness? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I've been reading a lot, right, like a lot of folks and uh, a lot of articles, a lot of research, and I uh, haven't seen a city that can fix the problem yet. Uh, I think we can try and manage it as best we can and better try to better understand what leads to homelessness. Um, it gets very, very complicated. Um, you know, you're, you've got to look at the cobweb of how people even end up being homeless and how do we be proactive to keep them you know, housed as best we can. But, I mean, you have people dealing with health issues you have people dealing with the economics of it and the workforce issues um light issues i mean there's so much involved with homelessness that there's not a one way to fix it all and and i think we're trying to understand that better here as a community and one thing i'm proud of here in the community is that we've seen it now not as a isolated city issue it's a it's a regional issue and to stand up a board like the uh, Community Homeless Advisory Board, where now you have elected officials from the city of Sparks, Washoe County, City of Reno, sit on to talk about these issues and better um, fund and, and, and channel resources to to try and deal with the issue is something that I've heard folks from Southern Nevada say that's something that we should probably consider thinking about is making this and consider it as a regional issue. Um, and then really leveraging and working strong with our nonprofit partners. You know, again, we can't do it all, and they do a great job, but also making sure who we support in funding and, and holding some accountabilities there as well, just to, to look at those measurements and those outcomes and constantly, constantly try and uh, critique those outcomes and see and learn from them and, and what can we do a better job. Yeah, some some of the criticisms that, that come down are that um, the city has taken steps that makes it sort of too easy to be homeless, too comfortable um, to be homeless in our community. Um, and then there are communities that, like we just saw in Las Vegas, the city of Las Vegas just passed an ordinance um, that criminalizes sleeping in public spaces if um, if there's room in their shelters, right? And then there's a huge backlash the other way. Um, how do you how do you respond to those criticisms that we um, are sort of coddling the homeless in some ways? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's the case. You know, um, you know, it's just no question. Just looking at the data, it's 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 really expensive to live in right now. It's really expensive, and there's not a lot of housing, and we know that we have a housing shortage. 
And we know that our currently our shelter is, is over capacity and we're having to put up a, a tent. And so um, in terms of the beds that are available for those homeless isn't necessarily uh, true because we, we can see that. We can walk down there and see it for ourselves. Um, and I think right now we're doing the best we can to try and make sure that people also have some, we treat them as, as humans, right? And, um, and and I'm very, very sensitive and thoughtful about that. But there's also organizations that we're funding to help with some of those resources. And we're, we've got to make sure that there's oversight and we're, we're doing our job to make sure that people are doing the best they can with the resources that they have. But it's no secret either that um, there's a lot of people moving into Reno. Uh, we're now dealing with those bigger city problems. Uh, so we've got to understand that uh, we're not, uh, you know, special in that sense where it doesn't happen in Reno. We've got to understand that it can and it, and it is. And so who are we learning from? I'm all about that uh, stealing and scaling. So let's go steal the best ideas that we see out, in the, out there in the nation that people are working on and scale them to what we need to do here in the city of Reno and Sparks and Washoe County to deal with some of the homelessness issues. I mean, uh, for me, I'd love to see a really intensive um intake process assessment right once once we see people that are vulnerable or in a state of, of homelessness uh, we know also that leads into that is the whole mental health issue and we're 51st in the, in, the, in the country in the nation right and that's not right and, and and we need to be able to be proactive in terms of assessing kids when they're elementary school so it doesn't impact them when they're adults and they can't hold a job you know and so there's so many things that we got to consider that we're missing out on that we're catching things on the on the at the end of the road, which we all know is a lot more expensive. Absolutely. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about uh, one of the key drivers that we discussed a little bit, and that's healthcare. Oscar is uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Community Health Alliance, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his role there and what he sees in our community from a healthcare perspective when we come back. We are back across the aisle with Oscar Delgado, who, along with being a Reno City Councilman like me, has a full-time job as well. I like to say real job, not that being being elected official is not a real job, but Chief Executive Officer of the Community Health Alliance, which is a federally qualified health center here in northern Nevada. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know what FQHCs are. Um, they're different than sort of a walk-in clinic, right? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what an FQHC is and the value that it brings? Absolutely. FQHCs are, the acronym stands for Federally Qualified Health Centers. And it was something that was brought into place by by the Johnson, by President Johnson way back in the 60s. And it was a way to really, um, it was the war on poverty. And it was an opportunity to bring clinics and accessibility and, and health care to the communities, directly to the communities, versus them having to go and find it and get it. And it's really, it's, it's nonpartisan, it's very supported by everyone, because it's very impactful, especially in the rural communities and in our urban communities. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a resource for, for those vulnerable communities. So Community Health Alliance is the largest FQHC here in northern Nevada and Washoe County. We serve nearly 30,000 patients. Um, we, we employ doctors, MDs, we employ dentists, dental hygienists, medical assistants, um, licensed clinical social workers, um, you know, PAs, I mean, the whole nine. And so we're, we're a pretty lar- large organization that, again, provides services to those, um, those communities that, if you're from Reno, um, probably understand why we're there. And some of those community parts are the Wells community. 
um, Neal Road, Sun Valley, the homeless shelter. Uh, we just opened one in North Valleys, and we have one there on the west end of Sparks, uh, which is, again, demographics of your working class uh, and some of those communities that are just at the brink of, of or just your Medicaid eligible communities. Right. So um, I, I think the funding streams are important for FQHCs, right? You get specific grants from uh, the federal government, right? right. HRSA grants. And you, can also, you also get a, uh, an enhanced reimbursement rate for Correct. Medicaid, right? Correct. Yeah, and what those really allow us to do is, again, to not be competitive with your private sector, your large hospitals, but at least provide a, a, a decent salary and wage to entice um, those those providers, those medical professionals to, to come and join Community Health Alliance. Um, and again, we, we there's a, quite a few things that FQHCs are flexible and able to do is we're also able to provide a, a wraparound services for those members that come into our clinics. Once we have them, we know how important it is to assess currently where they are and, and how we can refer them out to specialists if we don't have those, those specialties or those services within the clinic. Right. It's also not. A, it's, it's important to note, right? It's not a free clinic. No one's right. no one's getting services for free. Everyone's uh, so you're you're required to have a sliding fee scale for people who are, are uninsured, right? Yeah, about I'd say sixty percent of our overall patient load um, are Medicaid and Medicare eligible. Twenty percent is commercial insurance, um, and so we we take everything and anything, and uh, the rest is a sliding scale fee. Can, cash on hand to, to, to take care of those. I will say that our homeless clinic at homeless homeless clinic at the shelter is free for any homeless that establish themselves as being homeless, and that's a grant that we get through HRSA that covers that. And so those, those services, you know, if you want needed a vaccination, you want to get an overall assessment, a physical, and those things uh, will we'll cover that primary care service of it. We also provide dental, uh, and on the dental end for the adults, it's just basically your emergency dental. Uh, but a big part of our practice is, is for youth, for our kids. So preventative dental care? Absolutely, yeah. And also, yeah, we also do restorative care as well. People have always reached out to me struggling to find um, dental care if they don't have insurance and, yeah. and they don't have a lot of money. It's just it, it's expensive and it's, it's difficult to find. So it's good to provide that service. What are the um, sort of biggest gaps that you see? Um, in, in terms of your client base uh, versus what might exist for a, sort of a doctor in private practice? I mean, what are the health disparities that, that, that your patients struggle with? You know, you, you got to put yourself in the state of mind of, of knowing that a lot of our um, patients are your um, nine-to-five working-class uh, community members that are either working in the warehouses or your service sector or housekeepers or your landscapers um, they're the the backbone of a lot of the the jobs that make our economy run right and so and in addition to that it's their their kids and their youth they're their families and so a lot of our families are the kids that are that live in those title one school areas right um, and so a lot of the health disparities there that we're seeing within our clinics are related to diabetes uh, obesity issues this lack of physical activity um, we're also seeing issues related to um, sometimes dual current issues where you have somebody maybe with a mental health issue that's never been assessed or evaluated and now they're coming in and we're seeing why they weren't taking the medications is because they've never been assessed or, or, or had the opportunity to sit with a behavioral professional. And so we see that that's then turns into larger issues, right? Um, where sometimes I end up in the ER 
And so for us, a big part of it is a lot of uh, the preventative care. And I think that's what the Affordable Care Act has allowed us to do is everyone's insured now. And and now they're able to go in and get some of that, some of that preventative care, at least set a baseline uh, for where they currently are health-wise. And um, hopefully we can keep them out of that emergency room and keep them healthy. And hopefully that also plays into the role in the home when they go home and the kids and their other family members will start to see what a healthy lifestyle is. Uh, is there anything from a policy level um, that we should be thinking about to try to close some of those gaps? Yeah. I mean, it's, we're, we're always it's, it, like, you know, you know, Ben, one of the things we all know is, is with the larger demand, there's going to be larger demand on resources and Absolutely. funding, right? Yep. And money. And so it's, it's kind of going in and saying, really evaluating and say, let's, what, what evaluating, looking at pilots and saying, pilot programs and saying, has this worked, has this not worked? Uh, one of the things we're really wanting to look at is, uh, for us, is how much cost savings have we done for the hospitals to the overall health system? And hopefully, if there are have been some savings in that sense, then can we get some of those savings so we can go in and maybe hire some more of those professionals that aren't reimbursed by Medicaid, by the mm-hmm. Medicaid state plan, right? Because uh, there are some positions that we know work, but they're not reimbursed for, so we had to go out and do the fundraising for, right, to keep people healthy, uh, like care coordination or clinical uh, pharmacists that we know that uh, play a big part in uh, keeping people out of the ER and keeping people uh, healthy and, and in the workforce. Yeah. Uh, you um, CHA does have a pharmacy, right? We do. Yeah, so how do you manage um, prescription drug costs for low-income patients? So we're also eligible for a 340B program as an FKHC, so we get big discounted rates. Uh, so if you're a patient of CHA, you get, you're eligible for and benefit from those, those rates. Uh, an example I usually use is uh, Humira. You know, some people usually use for arthritis. Um, it's a brand name. If you are out in the market and you, you purchase it over the counter, it's last, last time I checked, it was right around 2500 bucks a month, right, for 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 prescription, if you're a CHA patient, you get it for $25. Really? Um, wow. And so, again, that's one of the benefits of an FQHC is um, we get those, we have the leverage of the government to go in and, and negotiate on our end uh, for us at times, and let's get uh, people cared for. But a lot of times, again, people are hesitant to or don't have the time to go and see a primary care physician. Um, they, they can't take off, they can't go and see their foreman at a job site and say, can I take off because I feel sick because they know if, there's someone else waiting right behind them to take their job, right? And so it's also being flexible enough to figure out how we can, how can we get out to the community more to, to serve them. So the um, that pricing structure is negotiated by the federal government on your behalf and yeah. applies to all FQHCs across the country? Correct. Right. And then so regardless of pay source, if you're insured through a private insurance company um, and you're a patient um, at CHA, you get that pricing? You get that benefit, yeah. yeah and it's, we prefer to, because of that enhanced fee for Medicaid and Medicare uh, patients, we uh, uh, we prefer to have those patients only because we get that enhanced fee. But we'll take commercial, uh, even though commercial insurances pay us a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, you talked about the ACA. Um, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, at the national stage about sure. where we're going where we're going to move as a country uh, with our insurance plans. There's the Medicare for All sort of universal coverage mm-hmm. proposal that a lot of people have talked about. Um, you have other presidential candidates sort of pushing back on that from an affordability perspective and saying that we should really be focusing more on you know providing a public option and w- the goal is to get everybody covered. Um, how we do that is is um, 
you know, sort of up, up for debate. Um, you know, what are your thoughts generally about the state of the healthcare system as it exists? As you, uh, you know, as a as a key player. In yeah, it? it's it's still broken, right? I mean, and I say it's broken because, in a sense, where I think we've made huge strides through Obama and getting everyone covered. Um, but then what that also highlights is the fact that we have a shortage of providers in our community. And so people are still trying to get that access to care. And, and once we start to figure out that and start walking backwards in sense of people are covered, they still don't understand how to use their coverage. They don't know what they're eligible for. Um, and not everyone takes Medicaid. Not everyone takes. Um, and, and so it's trying to figure out where are the providers in that. And then it's also trying to recruit those providers to into our into our system and so there's a lot of work still to do and so I, I pause a little bit in the sense of saying uh, let's do the uh, Medicare for all because I just know that it's a lot more complicated than that mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of work that's has been done already um, that and it's also leads to a lot of partisanship conversation right about that and so I think there's an opportunity to really phase in and, and learn from what we've we're doing but uh, to be honest with you the Trump administration hasn't helped with that either um, and and it's actually what we're seeing is uh, due to some of the actions from the administration, um, people have started to come off of insurance because now they're they don't have to, so to say, get insurance. You mean the so, elimination of the individual mandate? Right. Um, so once you don't have it, um, there's a good chance you're going into the ER now, right? If something happens, we know how expensive that is. Uh, you also don't have an MCO or anyone else looking over you to try and help you to stay healthy or call on you to make sure you're staying healthy because um, you end up getting sick. And a lot of times people don't get checked in until they're real sick. Yeah. And then we know how much more expensive that is. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to still inform the community about how important it is to have coverage, um, to seek out a primary care um, physician, to, to have a home in terms of, a, of making sure that there's a home base to get those services. Um, or else we're just flying off the seat of our pants. Man. I think we'll I think we'll close it there, but I think it's important to point out that if you're listening to this podcast um, in late November, early December, it's currently open enrollment period for Nevada HealthLink. Um, that is that is where you can access any federal benefits you get from enrolling in um, a qualified health plan right. through the Affordable Care Act. So uh, NevadaHealthLink.com is the place to go do that. And uh, coverage is important, so you should take advantage of those benefits that are available to you. Oscar, anything else you want to uh, weigh in on before we close it up? No, I appreciate you reaching out. Um, I think we're all trying to do the best we can for our, for our community, and I'm really lucky to, to have access, access to everyone. And I thank everyone out there for being supportive of Appreciate it, Oscar. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you. This has been Across the Aisle with your host, Senator Ben Kiekefer. Stay up to date and join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or sign up for the newsletter at benfornevada.com.